Great to have everyone here. Even though I was back last Sunday, it's really good to be back. And I want to thank those guys that really worked hard at Billy Nudgel, Dave, uh, Richard Ford here. And uh, thanks so much, Richard, all the others that really put in there. Really appreciate it. Just uh, maybe, I'll be back maybe the week before I left. And for those that don't know, I've been to uh, Hillsong, Canberra, South Coast, Coss Harbour, Thailand. And so that's where we've been. Uh, But just before we left, uh, I don't know about you, but I I really value the presence of God flowing in his people. And uh, I value the prophetic. uh, As as 1 Thessalonians 5 says, don't despise prophetic utterances. And anyway, I had been mulling over in my heart uh, uh, just some direction uh, here for the church. And, uh, and it was sort of one of those things I was tentative of and I, was, uh, I wasn't sure to go forward, go back. And Denise Prentice actually was a Billy Nudgel and uh, Denise really, I believe, heard God. And she just came to me and she laid hands on me. And she said, Neville, the thing that you've got stirring in your heart at this very moment, the thing that you're going to back away from, God is saying you need to do. And, uh, and that very thing uh, that I was stirring in my heart was the next direction for us as a church uh, to pursue, particularly when it comes to the Word, uh, when it comes to uh, what we believe God is saying to us. And uh, I'd been wanting for some time uh, to actually pursue a direction uh, on the church. And, uh, and the best book in the world for that is the book was, that was written for that, which is the book of Ephesians. And I really believe I heard God uh, to uh, begin a series in Ephesians, uh, particularly uh, in regard to the church, and which we're going to begin with today. I've called this the Cinderella Complex just for you, Paul, just for you. He's got two little girls, and of course, uh, you've got to live in a world uh, like that when they're that age. Uh, But anyway, uh, the series both here, where we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, and uh, where we're looking at the union of Christ and his church. And then in Billy Nudgel, we're going to uh, begin looking at the book of Colossians, just keeping Jesus number one. And the book of Philemon, which talks about forgiveness and reconciliation. And so we call this the jailbird letters. So I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians. I'm only going to read three verses. I want to introduce where we're going, what we're doing today. I pray this will bless you. Uh, So Ephesians chapter 1. Jit read at the start of the service Ephesians 2. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want to read that verse 3 again. That's like uh, and all of you people involved with computer. When you get a very, very compressed file and you open that file, 
And you go, man, there's some information in that little compressed file. So let me read that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now, I don't know for you, and um, I'm sure uh, at some stage many of you would have at some stage attempted to read Ephesians or some of the New Testament letters. When you come to Ephesians, um, it is a profound, succinct, comprehensive little letter. Uh, Some ways unusual, but yet it's captivated the imaginations of great people. Uh, John Calvin, it was his number one favorite book. And uh, if I can maybe, uh, and I'll see how I go. Actually, I may be, oh, Jit, can you pop that in? And that will help me. Um, But I maybe uh, begin by actually... If you'll allow me the time, I just want to talk through a little bit of general things in the letter, and then I want to zero right into verse 3. And so just to kick this off, uh, so we'll have that in. We're ready to go? Yes. Okay. So Ephesians. I want to just give you some of the thinking some people have had of this little letter. John McKay, a theologian, said, The greatest, maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all the letters Paul wrote. Uh, Armitage Robertson called it the crown of St. Paul's writings. Ruth Paxson, the Grand Canyon of Scripture. They're they're pretty high superlatives. William Barclay, the queen of all the epistles. Now, we could go on and on with that, but I just want to say um, uh, this is profound, yet it is so unusual as a letter. It actually is different than Paul's other letters. It reads more like a sermon, if I can say that. Uh, There's no personal references, no personal greetings. Uh, There's no specific problems that he addresses. He just writes these six chapters for a very specific purpose. And I want to try and unpack a little bit of that. I want to start with a quotation, if I can, from William Barclay. And uh, I think he captures this well. He actually says the central thought of Ephesians is the realization of the diversity in the universe and the conviction that it can become unity only when everything is united in Christ. Then he said this, so we have two lines of thought in the book of Ephesians. First, Christ is God's uh, interest of reconciliation. And second, the church. The church is Christ's instrument of reconciliation. So this little letter is really a letter about the church in union with Christ. Now, I don't know what you think about the church. (laughs) I find it quite interesting. Uh, I remember the first time I ever came to church, other than a hatch and a match. Thank you, Brenton. He called this a good church uh, and and a dispatch. But I found all these different uh, understandings of what people believe the church There's some people that see it as an institution, but just tradition, and some form of respect is due. There's a lot of people that hold that view. There are some that see the church as an enemy to everything they stand for. The communist world, a world I've been to many times, uh, is a world that was grounded on a principle to destroy the church. Uh, 
the secular world. There are some of those who hate the church. Uh, the atheists certainly do, and I've read Richard Dawkins' God Delusion, and if I read his attitudes correctly, he hates the church with a passion. Now, some people are really, really intense attitudes. Um, some people look at the church with cynical eyes. They've been hurt. They've experienced pain. They feel let down. Been there, done that once, and... They're, they're, they're actually, you know, got some real, real attitudes towards what we regard the church. Some people see the church only after your money. Hillsong, till on the hill, uh, or whatever way you, you look at it. And uh, can I just say this? And I say this with all respect. If I go down to the RSL, I've got any premise in this town, they're all after your money. Why do people say that about the church? But they do. You're only after the money. And then you got the church is full of hypocrites. Ever heard that one? <laughs> full of hypocrites. Um, the church cannot be trusted. I, I, I remember when I was in Kosaba, there was a guy that just would not trust the church. We had to get a new window. And I went to purchase the window from him. And because I was from the church, he raised the price 30%. <laughs> I think he had an attitude. Um, and some, and I would say most, for them, the church literally has no relevance to me or my world at all. And they vote with their feet because they're not in church. And so uh, of the last census, 60% of this nation, 65% still say they're affiliated church, but most of them don't go. So they voted with their feet. Now, what I want to come to is not what people think of the church. Now, yes, 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 I know there is a difference between Christendom, the outward church, and the true, living, vibrant church, the church of faith in Christ. There is a big difference. I know that, but the world does not know that. And um, uh, so I, I don't want to go there, but I want to go to the place of what God thinks of the church. That's, that's what I want to look at. How does God see the church? Because if we can see how God sees the church, it's going to help the church to see itself how it should see itself. You, you follow what I'm saying? Now, Ephesians is the book in the New Testament that tells us how God feels about the church. And so in this journey, we're going to be looking literally at the union of Christ and the church. And in Ephesians, Paul's passion is for the church to see who she really is. Now, I want to say a few things about that, but I think everyone is familiar with this story, the story of Cinderella, raised with two stepsisters and a, and a not-so-nice stepmom. And she is relegated to the chores and, and, and to dowdy living, uh, you know, serving in a, in, a, in a meagerly way there. And then one day she meets the fairy godmother. Do you remember that? And, and the fairy godmother comes and in that moment of time, the pumpkin is turned into a chariot. Those mice are turned into champion steeds. She gets a whole new attire. She gets beautiful glass slippers because she's on her way to a ball. And she's going to meet the prince of princes. And he's going to get infatuated with her. And she's going to be 
Where's Nikki? Where is Nikki? She's abandoned me. Isha! Ho, ho, whoa, man! <laughs> uh, that's just for Nikki. So with that there, uh, you know, I think we're all familiar with that story. And uh, the fairy godmother was the one with a little wand who transformed her into what she really should be according to her rightful identity. Now, you know, Paul in Ephesians is the fairy godmother. Uh, anyway, I can see you're really caught onto that. Now, I want to say something about the church. The church, let's be honest here, and, uh, and we're, not, we're not tag over the door. I'm talking to those people, irrespective of where you're from, who've got genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with that there, we, if you look at us, we're from different social constructs. They can be rich to very poor, different backgrounds, different passions, different spheres of influence. And to be really honest, bar for Jesus Christ, some of you I would have never met in this life. You follow what I'm saying? Because we're different. Now, Sue and I used to, I worked for the government, and at one stage I was posted in a rural town called Glen Innes. And uh, we were part of a, quite an interesting church, had a very great diversity in the church. We had farmers, which you would expect in a farming area. We had townspeople, small country town people, and they say about country towns, there's not much to do, but what you're sure here makes up for it. And, um, and so uh, we had hippies and alternates and people with hair out this way, out this way, out this way, and, and, and far out, man, uh, they were far out. And, and so uh, I tell you, we had some interesting people, and we had city people trying to escape the, escape the rat race for a green change. We had all of that. And so we had some interesting people, and I look at sometimes at those people, and I'd go, dear God. How am I in the middle of this mob? I would have never rubbed shoulders with any of them, or a good portion of them. You follow what I'm saying? I'm only speaking the truth. Is that right? Okay, all right. Now, we had one old guy in our church there, and I'll call him Len. And old Len, he was an old guy in the 1980s. And Len used to come to church, and he was poor. He was on, obviously from the wrong side of the shack, uh, uh, the, the, the tracks. He, he lived in this old, dilapidated house. And if you went to his house, it was full of newspapers and stuff. And you walk in and you couldn't even find your way through the place. And old Len used to come to church with an old walking stick. And he had these funny shoes. And he used to wear these old clothes. And he used to come, but there was something that drew him to the church. There's something that drew him to worship and God's people in faith. And he used to come to church, and, and I, I always used to go, oh, it's so good to see poor old Len. That, that was my, my, my line for him. Poor old Len. And so poor old Len would come there, and he'd be a part of church. And he was part of the church for a number of years uh, while I was there, and, and um, I, I got to know him. But poor old Len definitely lived frugally. <laughs> I tell you, even the clothing he wore, the very house he lived in, he, 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 it was just, I tell you, at Bar Church, I would have never met him. You follow what I'm saying? And, um, and so things got a little difficult because the council condemned Len's house. 
And they said, your house has got to get cleaned up. And so all the council went round to clean his house out and clean all that terrible stuff through his house. And one of our leaders in the church worked for the council. And he was sent to clean up the house. And so it was a bit awkward because poor old Len was embarrassed. And this guy in our church, he was doing his job. There he is. And then he went into the house and he said, oh, Neville, you've got no idea which took us two or three days to clean everything out of the house and try and help this poor old Len. And anyway, uh, what happened was there was one moment of time where the guy, his name was Richard, the guy that was a leader in our church, he went out and he found a 44-gallon drum and he pulled off the lid and it was full of rancid fat. And he went, oh, oh. And he and three men began to wheel a 44-gallon drum of rancid fat to put it on a little excavator to take off and haul to the tip. And poor old Len ran after that drum going, Don't take my cooking fat! Don't take my cooking fat! And Richard told me it was just this very, very awkward moment. Now, I lived in that town for six and a half years, and it was only at the end of that six and a half years... I learned that poor old Len was the richest man in the town. In fact, he owned more property, more buildings, had more wealth than anyone that came to the church. And I had to look at this and go, poor old Len. (laughs) Len, man alive. Len was rich. In fact, (laughs) so rich that I don't think I would have rubbed shoulders with him normally. I had just this total wrong paradigm of poor old Len. Because Len lived frugally. Len lived like he was a pauper. Len lived as if he was born on the wrong side of the tracks. But Len was rich. He just didn't live according to his position. That is the story of Ephesians. Because so many Christians do not live according to their position. They've come into the kingdom, and yet they live their lives a little bit like the unenlightened Cinderella and a little bit like poor old Len. That's where they sit. That's where they live. And so I wanted to start with that story uh, because as I was reading Ephesians, I couldn't get poor old Len out of my mind because this, unfortunately, spiritually, is the reality for for so many Christian believers. So let's, let's begin. Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the letter begins with Paul. Paul says, I'm writing this letter. In actual fact, three times it'll tell you that he was in prison uh, when he wrote it. 3-1, 4-1, 6-20. And the letter opens with 
Paul and all the historic church never questioned that. All the early church fathers held to that point, Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus, no one questioned that Paul wrote Ephesians. All the church history, no one ever questioned it up until the 19th century until textual criticism arose. And people who think they're bright suddenly get some funny ideas. And suddenly there came some questions. Because Ephesians is a very unusual letter. How could a man live in a city for three years and not give one personal address to the people he was writing to? And so they began to question that aspect. The doctrinal content is too unique. It's bizarre. In fact, in this chapter, verse 3 to verse 14, is one long sentence without a full stop. So there you go, they, they say. And then they say, whoop, they say the Greek style is different. Uh, uh, they use different words. Uh, unique vocabulary is used here. Um, and so with this, all these questions begin to rise, and then people say, well, we don't think Paul wrote Ephesians, is what they begin to say. Now, what happens there, they sort of forget a couple of things. And so uh, Colossians is the closest parallel to Ephesians, two parallel letters in the whole New Testament, other than two other little ones where one was copied. But this, this, this is unique, but yet it's not copied. It's, it's someone is so full of Colossians and their head becomes so full of Ephesians that they nearly use the same structure, the same, a lot of things. And so, uh, and so the critical people said, well, what happens? There must have been one of Paul's disciples who wrote it. And Paul died, and then his head was so full of the new concepts that he was trying to articulate and trying to uh, say, and then he wrote them all down. Now, <laughs> there was one guy commenting on that, F.F. Bruce, and he said this, The epistle to the Ephesians was not written directly by Paul, yeah, but one of the disciples in the apostle's name. Then the author, that author was the greatest Paulinist of all time, a disciple who has assimilated his master's thoughts more thoroughly than anyone else ever did. So in other words, whoever wrote Colossians wrote Ephesians. Now, with that there, is, that means uh, we come back to what was always the traditional explanation of the letter. Actual fact, three-fifths of Colossians is in Ephesians, 35 verses directly. Now, let me come back to the traditional explanation, and, which I believe is the right one. The letter was an encyclical letter. It just wasn't written to Ephesus. It was written to a whole bunch of churches all through Asia. So lots and lots of churches, which are the church. And so with that uh, there, as uh, Paul was there, as I said, he was in prison. And three times it says that. And so the traditional view was in, at the end of Acts, when Paul was in prison for two years, at the end of that time period, uh, Paul got a visitor. Now let me explain the visitor. Uh, a, a guy came to Paul's links group. He was allowed to have a links group, uh, literally in jail. <laughs> he was two chains, so he's definitely in a links group. And so, uh, and you don't know what our, our small group expression, our church, it's links. And so he's in chains. And so Paul was running his links group. And you wouldn't know, this young guy came into his links group. And he had come from a tiny little town called Colossae which is sort of an oxymoron. I'll speak more of that tonight. But he came from this little town called Colossae. And out of this little town, uh, uh, he was a slave. And his master was a man called Philemon. And what happened? 
He took the money and he run. <laughs> so he flogged all his master's money and he hightailed it out of Colossae and traveled 1,700 kilometers to the big smoke, Rome. So he arrived in the big smoke and wouldn't you know it, someone invited him to Paul's links group. He came to Paul's links group and guess what happened? He got linked, he got saved. He met Jesus Christ and he full on got saved. But he's got a problem. He's actually ripped his master off who was a Christian, had money. And, and so he comes to faith. Now it just so happens at the exact same time, there was another man called Epaphras. And Epaphras, he had got saved under Paul and he visited Paul at the exact same time. Now in the book of Acts, Acts 9, 9 and 10, Paul had spent two years in the city of Ephesus. He just stayed in that one city in Asia. And for two years, he preached from a school, the school of Tyrannius. Wouldn't that be a good name for a school, a Bible school? You know what that word means? The school of tyranny, the tyrant. <laughs> Can you imagine the Bible principle of that school? Paul. <laughs> the school of the tyrant. And so Paul taught there for a whole two years. And it says all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And people got saved. People came to faith. One of them was this guy called Epaphras. And he went up into what's known as the Lycus Valley in an area of Turkey, and he established all these churches, Laodicea, Heropolis, Colossae, and all these churches up a valley. And he'd established them uh, under Paul's jurisdiction. And so this man, Epaphras, he had just arrived at the same time this young guy called Onesimus uh, comes to faith. And he comes with news from this town called Colossae, that there's a heresy, a syncretistic heresy, a merging of faith systems. It's a new age uh, assault on the church in Colossae. We'll be talking more about that tonight because uh, that's what it was. And so uh, can I just say Colossae was just like Byron Bay. <laughs> anyway, I believe and so do I. And so do I. <laughs> okay. And so uh, you can make up your mind about that. So Paul, hearing Epaphras... And having this young guy called Onesimus who he's got to send back to his master and get right, what he does is he writes three letters. The first letter we'll begin looking at tonight, written to a very specific situation called Colossians. The theme of that letter is Christ is the head and over, of the church and over all philosophy and thinking of men. We'll look at that tonight. And we're going to begin the journey in that book up in Billy Nigel. And the content is very specific and very defensive or polemical. Now, he wrote a second letter because he's going to send this young man, Anasimus, back to his home. And so he writes a letter in your New Testament called Philemon. And Philemon was the master of this young guy that got saved in his links group. And so it's written to a specific, note this, very wealthy family in this little town called Colossae. And the theme is forgiveness and reconciliation or how to bring into unity what was once had massive division. And that unity can only come through Christ. The content is very personal. Now, what happens? Colossians, when we read that letter, Colossians 4.16 says when the letter, uh, the letter, Colossians, 
is read by the Colossians. Have it read also to the church of Laodicea, which was up the road, 10 or 15 K. And, uh, and see that you also read the letter from where? Laodicea. There's another letter coming the other way, but it's from. It's not to the Laodiceans. And most likely, it was the third letter, which you know as the book of Ephesians. Now, this letter was written to help the churches. In actual fact, in verse 1 is the word in Ephesus. It's not in the oldest manuscripts. It, it appears as if it was in a cycle letter where it was sent by the people and it had a blank space. And whichever where it went to a church, they would fill a name in for the church. And the key area of that area of the world in ancient Asia was the city of Ephesus. And uh, we've been there several times in Turkey. Um, some of you may have been there. But anyway, it was written, and the theme, as Paul's mind is full of Colossians, full of Philemon, he goes, man, I've got to sit down and I've got to write a church to the church universal. I'm going to write to them just so they'll know who they really are. And the church in relationship to Christ, and it's a circular letter. It's reflective. It, it reads as a sermon when you get it because it was meant to be addressed to each church, each church, and it happened that the name Ephesus, the key city, stuck to the letter. Everyone? Now, that's the traditional view, and I believe it's the correct view. So I call these the three jailbird letters, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. And you know, amazing thing, Paul is in jail in chains. And he's actually the freest man who ever lived. And he's writing to a people who are so-called free, but don't know who really they are, and therefore they're not free. Can, can you see the irony of that? And, and, okay, now, end of Ephesians, he's going to send it by this man called Tychicus. So that you may also know how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother, the faithful minister, is going to do that to you. And both Colossians and Ephesians ends exactly the same, with the same address. And uh, many people believe because Paul signed them off at the end. Now, with that there, uh, you doing okay? Okay, because I, I need to know and because I need to really get to where I want to want to get. So, um, so I, I've done all the preliminaries, get all those things out of the way because if I don't, someone's going to raise them. And, uh, and we need to do that. So this encyclopedia letter explains all those issues, that there's no personal greetings, lack of problematic issues, and that much of Colossians is in the letter because it was written by Paul. Now, it says to the saints who are in Ephesus, the word saint, hagios, is the word just means set apart. doesn't mean you've been Catholicly canonized. You know, you're the saint. You work two miracles and you're special. Uh, no, no. It just means you are set apart for God's purposes because you believed in Jesus. And you're faithful. And that just simply means uh, that, uh, I've got it there, uh, you exercise faith and you hold to the faith of Christ. So it's a good preliminary greeting. So saints, faithful. Uh, do you realize you're a saint? Saint Marcus. Saint Marcus. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I don't think so. Oh, yes, you are. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? You're a saint. You've got faith in Christ and you persevere in that. But the key verse is this, and then we're just going to have some time just as we finish this off. Verse 3. Blessed be the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing. Not a little token, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Is that a compressed file? Jit Chong, you open that one, man alive. (laughs) You're going to have to have a big zipper. Uh, Anyway, you aren't computer nerds. You know nothing about that. Now, you know, verse 3, the irony of this, it actually is not a distinct sentence. It actually is the beginning of one long sentence that runs from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. And I'll look at that next time I'm with you in this series. But to paraphrase William Hendrickson, these verses, I love how he puts it, is it's like a snowball cascading down a mountain gathering its size and pace and influence as it descends. And you wait when you get hit by it at the bottom. Okay? It's because Paul... He sat two years in prison on a chain. He's had a lot of time to think. And when this letter opens, man alive, he's got one word. Whoa! Awesome! Um, Anyway, I can see that absolutely thrilled you. Um, But if one is a believer, if you believe in Jesus, you have faith in him, (laughs) The fairy godmother has arrived. And she spun a wand. And you better wake up to who you are. And empowered in resources, empowered in riches. Poor old Len. Come on, man. Start to live as you were in position. Are you doing all right? You got me worried today. You're looking funny. But you are blessed in Christ. Now, that little phrase, people tend to read over, but it's possibly the most important phrase of any phrase Paul ever spoke. In this letter, he uses it 27 times alone. In the first, verses 3 to 14, he uses it 10 times. If you go in Christ and in Him, in Christ, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Him. We'll get to that next time. But can I just say, he uses it 164 times in his 13 epistles. Did you realize that? So it's a pretty important phrase, in Christ. What's that mean? What's in Christ actually mean? What does it mean? And, you know, for some, they've never sat back to see what that means. I'm blessed in Christ. Now, I think we get a little bit of a gauge by uh, once the Bible says in Romans 5, you were all in Adam. What's that mean? That means there's a connection from me to Adam. Adam sinned, so do I. <laughs> and, and, uh, and there's a family tree, and it's a family tree of death. And we're all connected to it because we've all come from Adam. We're in Adam. So Romans 5.12 says, and he brought death to everyone. Now, when Paul says you are in Christ, he has come and he's connected you in a new living, vibrant connection to another tree, which we call the cross. And this has brought a new family tree of a company of people, a community that we call the church. 
And we're connected to that in a vital union to Christ. Let me take that a little further. This union becomes the great theme of this letter of Ephesians. A union between God's old covenant people. If they've met Christ, they join with the new covenant people, Jew and Gentile. A union of stones as an in, just to make one temple of God. A union of where, as if to a body, to a head, a vital, living union of connection. But Jesus is in heaven. Oh, that's going to have profound uh, impact on that. And you know what the good news about that is? If we're the body and you ever felt like drowning and you go, I couldn't get any deeper than this, don't worry. Your head is above the water. He's in heaven. And it doesn't matter what happens in this world. <laughs> Unky dory, this little body's coming up. And on a particularly a big day on the surf, whew, that's comforting. I remember once surfing, and I was on a huge, huge day. And, mate, I got caught inside, and I went so jolly deep. I went as deep as I thought. Everything went black. My friends on the, on, on the, on the cliff side who were watching because of a big day, they said your board got pulled under and went two lengths of a leg rope, they reckon, under the water. I, I was down so deep. And you wouldn't believe it. On that big berth or a guy had tried to take off on that wave. And I, 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 I sort of saw that out of the corner of my eye when I was getting ditched and going deep, 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 deep. And I went, you can't get any deeper. And suddenly I felt this bit of an individual underneath me. And I put my feet on him. And I went, push. <laughs> he went deeper. <laughs> Honky dory. I was on my way to the surface. Ah, but friends, you don't matter how deep you go in God. Christ is your head. You can't drown. Anyway, the union of a husband to a wife, Hebrew, ish, Nikki, ish, sha. <laughs> and there's a union of a husband to a wife that is vital. It is living union. Now, with that there, probably the best illustration of this is as Jesus taught. And I think Paul was full of Jesus. And so Paul, or not Paul, Jesus put it this way. I am the vine, John 15, 5. You are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, oh, wow. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine. Now, now with that there, my background was agricultural science. I know how this works, is you go, and you spend the most time choosing the vine. That's where you spend most of your time. And you make sure you choose a vine that's got all the right attributes. And then you go, you shove that sky on that looks like a little bit of a dead twig. You shove it in the ground. And then you go looking for your branches. And you get the branches and you come back and you do a cut in the vine and you do a cut off the end of the branch, and you fuse the two living tissues together, and suddenly the sap begins to flow from the vine into the branch. And it becomes literally a living union. And that's the picture that Jesus has. You know, there's a prophecy in Isaiah 53 too. Many people read over this. They quote it, but they don't think about it. And it was speaking of Jesus 750 years before he came. And it says, For he, Jesus, grew up before him, that's God, like a young plant and like a root out of what? 
dry ground. A scion, a vion that's been pushed into the ground. And he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Because it just looked like a twig placed into the ground. But friends, that is full of resurrection life. And if you can connect those branches, that resurrection life begins to flow. And so the vine is very life and sap is now coursing through the branch because it's a vital union. The sap carries with it inherent riches that's going to bear fruit everywhere because the riches are in the vine. And this union brings these riches to bear and the vine always runs true to type. Always runs true to type. Now, God planted on an ugly hill. He planted a sky on. You know it as Jesus on the cross. And for some people, they just look at that and they go, oh, Jesus on the cross. But friends, when faith is connected to that action, it begins a union. And a union where you begin to experience this life flow through you. And <laughs> I was a heathen for 20 years. So I know how this works. I came into the kingdom of God and suddenly Jesus is in my life. And I, I can feel that sap. We call, it, we call him the Holy Spirit. And I can feel the Holy Spirit flowing through my life. He's drawing me to go, Jesus, you're awesome. He's coursing through my life and go, you can't do that. You need to do this. It's because that very life flows and it bears fruit. Now, that is the union that we're talking about. All you can do is be a branch. And listen to what the branches have to do. Whoever abides, all you've got to do is rest in that union of faith and continuing in faith and that sap of God flows through you. And much fruit you'll bear, and apart from him, you can do absolutely nothing. So in Christ, you're a sharer of resurrection life in him. By faith, we're grafted into Christ. He becomes my world. He becomes my very life of life, spiritual life, Zoe life. <laughs> There's a joy, joy, joy. There's got to be something, flow. And, and we just come and, and we just grafted in. And so the church, in fact, this term church, ecclesia, assembly, another way of translating, becomes the key word of the whole letter. It's mentioned nine times throughout this letter of Ephesians. And this means that the church lives in two worlds, Ephesus and in heaven. And it means you, if you're a believer and a saint and a faithful, you live in two worlds, Byron Bay and in heaven. And so with this here, Ephesians 1.3, let me finish it. I've got two more things to say before we finish. Is that all right? Can you live with that? Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. My, my, my. In the where. Now, those two things are massive. And they're going to undergird the whole lever. We're going to look at next time that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
are just revealed here, and I'll, I'll fly over this at the moment. But Ephesians 1.3, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. What's that word mean? Is is to get the blessing, in other words, you've got to be grafted in the vine. If you haven't got faith in Christ, you haven't got a relationship with him, there is no blessing. You can manufacture it, but it's a work. His fruit is organic, and it comes from relationship with Christ through faith. And in that relationship with Christ in faith, you have to be grafted into the vine to receive the blessing to be able to feel that sap flowing through your very life. You with me? I love how Paul put it in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, 14, 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they folly to him. He is not able to understand them because, he's, because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person, the spiritual man, he can judge all things because he's got the ability to discern them because he's come alive in the Spirit. There's a union with faith in Christ, and now there's a transformation. He's become a spiritual man. I often tell people, how many senses? You watch this with YWAM. I go to the YWAM guys teaching. How many senses do you have? Five. And I go, how many fingers do you have? All the YWAMs, sorry, YWAMers, they go, five. I says, come on, how many do you really have? And they go, they think about it and go, ooh, ten. Oh, congratulations. You've got some observation. How many toes do you have? And you are meant to be alive, not just naturally, but spiritually. You are meant to see spiritually. You're meant to hear spiritually. You're meant to smell spiritually. You're meant to taste spiritually. You're meant to touch spiritually. And many of you go to church, you walk away and you go, I felt so touched today. What is it, Psalm 32.8, is it? And it goes, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Because you've got to come alive spiritually, friends. You've got to be in Christ. You've got to be in union. You've got to be grafted in the vine. So let me finish with this. Has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Sorry, Matthias. You didn't get your gold star. <laughs> so let me just say this. This is a very, very important phrase in this letter. In fact, it's used five times, epiorinos. And it's used five times. Let me maybe quote how it's used through the letter because I think once you see this, you'll get where the letter's going. We read, how, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What we're reading. Ephesians 1.20, which he worked when Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, where did he seat him? In heavenly places. Now, Ephesians and all Asia were obsessed with the occult, with heavenly things, with angels, with all lots of things. But here he's saying, I'm going to give you what's in the true heavens. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. And in verse 6, listen to this. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in. <laughs> Have you woke up to that? Where are you seated? Do you know who you are? Ho, ho, Cinderella, here we come. You're at the ball. Ephesians 3.10. So that the church. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the 
Oh, God's got a plan. And that plan is you. Only if you know who you are. And it finishes this way. Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the... So you're just not Cinderella. You're just not the princess bride. You're the warrior princess. Uh, what's that movie they just did? Wonder Woman. <laughs> you are Wonder Woman. A- anyway... Sorry. Now, this word is only used in Ephesians. There's one other sort of little bit of place. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Same, same Greek word, oronos. And, and you know what that means. First heaven means the atmospheric heaven. The second heaven is the stellar stars and all that sort of stuff. And the third heaven is the spiritual heavens. The ones that you now been seated with, with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And this is the domain of the God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Jesus, along with the angels. But it's also where there is moving of principalities and powers. And by the time we get to the end of the letter, you better know you're Wonder Woman. Because there's a war on, and you better get things right. Okay, anyway. Hebrews 12.23. Don't worry, I'm nearly to the end. It says, and you, you, every one of you, to the assembly, assembly, the church, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and the spirits of the righteous made perfect in him. Now, God has a plan and it is a good plan. And that plan is to wake you up to who you really are. So you are to have this vital union and we're to be linked to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. I love how Paul says that in 1 Timothy 1.17. So what do people think of the church? (laughs) Yep, they think all of those things and probably more. But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what God thinks of the church. And have I read Ephesians? Listen to this. Chosen before the foundation of the world. You might like it, but God chose it from before the foundation of the world. It's going to be there after the world is finished. In Ephesians 1.14, he created it out of a dead world. He unifies all the visions in that place, Ephesians 2.14, it becomes his temple where he will dwell, Ephesians 2.21. It's the, his mystery revealed to the world, Ephesians 3.10. It's immersed in his holy love, Ephesians 3.18. His body where Christ is the head. And in Ephesians 4.16, a new community shining in the darkness of this world, Ephesians 5.1. A bride yoked to a husband. In Ephesians 5.32, and a princess warrior for battle. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Do you know who you really are? Are you the unawakened Cinderella? Do you need a fairy godmother to wake you up to who you are? Are you like poor old Len, spiritually, living in the dumps, having no idea of your inheritance and who you truly are? Now, I won't do this now. Time is gone. But I want us to stand 
And this is my outline, Ephesians, and we'll come back to that. And I'll just say this, but I want to end this way. I want us to stand. Come on, everyone stand. This scripture in my life, we're going to get to, and I'm going to unpack when we get to it in this series. But I pray this prayer, this prayer, every day of my life. I pray it for you. I pray it went out this morning at dawn, and I prayed it for you this morning. It's my prayer for this church, all people that come into influence with us, and it's my prayer even if you have not met us and you listen to it on CD. It's my prayer, and I want to read it to you because this is the heart of it all. In the Cinderella complex, do you really know who you are in Christ? In Christ, in this vital union with Him. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the true knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you would see, that you would come alive spiritually and see, that you may know what is the hope of the calling that God has taken in you. What are the riches, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? You are rich. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Dunamis power. Pentecostal power. Power. That'll that'll do. Is, Is the greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And I pray by the time you get to this seri- end of this series, friends, this church will be Cinderella. Who ain't lose no silver, what is it, glass slipper. But you'll be royalty in God. Father, we thank you. We honor you. To you be the glory. To you be the praise. Jesus, I pray that you bless this people. Enrich them. Your name. Amen.